you saw the really big news that is going to affect all of our lives yesterday on Thursday came out, which is the judge's ruling that the trial in Georgia will indeed be televised and broadcast on the Fulton County Court YouTube channel. So yes, not only are we breaking precedent by having the first ever criminal trials, plural, of a former president of the United States, but we're all going to end up watching the whole darn thing on YouTube. They should all be like that. I mean, honestly, I like, you know, when I'm covering the Supreme Court, I listen into the audio and it's ridiculous. You can't see them. Sometimes they gesture or they joke or they make faces and only like a chosen tiny group of people can get in and see it. The rest of the country has to just imagine what's going on. It's ridiculous. It's still ridiculous that we are captive to, and I don't say this with any malice, but to court uh, sketch artists. It's it's a wonderful thing, but a bizarre, enduring <laughs> fact. Of, it's, of yeah, it's a 19th century legacy, right? It's uh, It feels right? like a very anachronistic thing. Even the Civil War had photographs of it, right? Yeah, okay, but okay, I, it's ridiculous. <laughs> also, it just it's one of those things. Not having cameras in there just doesn't pass the what I think of as the sort of. Martian test, which is if you were a Martian and you landed on Earth and you were told, oh, yeah, no, courts are uh, covered only by sketch artists and uh, and audio, you'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Although, to be fair, like, the Martians probably have a lot of other worries when they come and they see this <laughs> insanity that yeah, we have cooked point. up on. <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jane Mayer and Evan Osnos. Hey, Jane. Hey, good to be with you. Hey, Evan. Hey, Susan. Well, back to Fulton County, Georgia, and we're turning our focus today to Mark Meadows. Meadows is Trump's former right-hand man, his fourth and final White House chief of staff, and of course, a key figure in the entire plot to overturn the 2020 election, which is why he's one of 19 defendants along with Donald Trump. He made an interesting and important decision to take the stand and testify on Monday, an early preview, if you will, of this case in Georgia, as he was attempting to move his own case from state to federal court. Meadows is widely considered one of the key figures in this plot, but he was more than just an enabler of Donald Trump and a facilitator of his actions. In many ways, he might be among the most important and least understood Republicans in Trump-era Washington. So today, we're going to take a look at what makes Mark Meadows tick as a politician and what his rise and potential fall can teach us about the Republican Party going forward. First of all, let's go ahead and jump in, though, Evan, and just remind people what actually happened this week. Why was Meadows in court, uh, and was this some kind of an early preview of the case itself? Yeah, this was a a very interesting way for the Georgia courtroom drama to begin, actually. I mean, he is one of five co-defendants in the case who have asked— to try to move their case from state court to federal court on the grounds that they are 
uh, former federal officials and that this protects them from state-level charges. That's the argument. And you have to remember, he is accused of a lot in this case. He's really at the center in some ways of this indictment. He was meeting with state officials. He was like ordering up memos on how to overturn the results. And of course, then he was on the phone, that big fateful phone call, which we all know all about, where uh, then-President Trump asked to find 11,000 votes. And why is he doing this? He's doing this because the strategy is that he probably, in his mind, has better odds of getting a jury that will be friendlier to him in federal court because the way it works in Georgia is that the jury pool would be composed of people from across northern Georgia, which is more conservative than Fulton County. Uh, But what's also interesting here is we got a preview of the argument. And what he said in his testimony, it's very unusual. A lot of lawyers think it's a, a risky thing to get up and testify for three hours before you have to. He got up and he made the case that, in effect, what he saw himself doing was performing the duties of the chief of staff. And he started to make this case that there's no crisp line between being the chief of staff, federal authority on the one hand, as he put it, and elections and politics on the other. That's how his lawyers have written about it in their documents. And you're going to hear that over and over again in this case. Well, and I think the chief of staff defense really gets us to why we're having this conversation today, because, of course, uh, it underscores the very significance and uniqueness of people people at this high level in our government being accused of crimes, which is such an unusual occurrence. In fact, if he's convicted, I believe he'll become the first former White House chief of staff to go to jail since the Nixon era and Watergate. And that, Jane, brings us to the question of, you know, who is this guy and what does he tell us about kind of Trump world and how we ended up in this place? Like many, many Republicans in Washington, he was against Donald Trump before he was for him. Mark Meadows was this, uh, you know, obscure real estate guy from North Carolina. He comes to Washington as part of this kind of Tea Party movement, this this sort of neo-populist movement inside the Republican Party backlash to uh, Barack Obama's election. He and others found the far-right Freedom Caucus in the House. And in some ways, they are the people, right, Jane, who are kind of in permanent burn-it-down mode in Washington. What what else do you glean from kind of Mark Meadows' uh, pre-Congress and pre-Washington biography? Before we even get into that, I just want to say I'm glad you brought up Watergate because unprecedented though the situation is, there really were, many people don't remember the Watergate days anymore, but there was a chief of staff who went to jail for basically trying to uh, steal an election. So uh, it is, it's a constitutional crisis again, but it's not completely something that we've never seen before. So the risk to Mark Manos is in, is real. I mean, the, you know, he is in, in a whole lot of trouble. And if you look at his early years, I mean, it's, it's, I think you can see a lot of very interesting early red flags. Um, he, he is a military brat born abroad, comes back to America. He described himself in one piece, you know, when he was being interviewed about his childhood as a fat nerd. And he said that all he wanted to do was fit in. 
And his um, early ambition, I thought was very interesting, was to be a weatherman. And because I don't think there's anyone I can think of in American politics who's put his finger to the wind more often (laughs) to try to to figure out which way it's blowing and tell everybody what they want to hear and just fit in among the crowd that he's in. But as he's flattering everyone and telling them what they want to hear, you can see that that's one path to power in Washington. But he didn't do this alone. And, and and if you look at the history here, what fascinates me is he would never, I think you can argue, he would never have been in this position except for the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision in January of 2010, which opened up the floodgates for dark money, which poured into North Carolina through a front group called the Republican State Leadership Committee, which then took over state legislatures with dark money, particularly in North Carolina. And in 2010 was a census year, which enabled the Republicans to redistrict the state. It's a purple state. It's kind of, you know, it leans slightly Republican, but not terribly Republican. By the time the redistricting was done, thanks to taking over the state legislature with dark money, um, the the state was divided into 10 Republican districts, and, and three Democratic districts. In other words, it became incredibly lopsided. And the district that Mark Meadows first won in was one that was totally carved up. It made it impossible for a Democrat to win. So he comes into this thing and the Democrat who was the incumbent had dropped out. He didn't even bother to run. It was so impossible for a Democrat to win, by the way, they carved up this district. And in comes Mark Meadows, and he rides in on the Tea Party wave. That's what the money in politics got us was Mark Meadows. Well, Jane, I think that's such an important point. So he comes in on this Tea Party wave, and Evan, you know, almost his very first action in Congress is one of these incredibly revealing, almost a template to his personality, right? Because he's just mm. gotten elected. And what does he do? He goes to his own party's leader and he essentially joins in a, a, a brewing effort to topple John Boehner. Uh, and then when that fails, uh, Boehner recounts this story of how it is that Mark Meadows uh, then goes into his office uh, and drops on his knee and uh, asks forgiveness in a way that, uh, let's just say, John Boehner did not find entirely convincing. Evan, uh, when uh, uh, the Hill reporters uh, who really know what they're talking about, Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer wrote a book recently about Congress a few years ago. They quoted a congressional staffer saying that Mark Meadows was literally the most dishonest person in politics that person had ever encountered, (laughs) in part because his ability to say the things to each person that they wanted to hear. So he tells John Boehner, I'm sorry, those are crocodile tears. A few years later, of course, Meadows, having now founded the Freedom Caucus, what do they do? They essentially force Boehner out. They they use a rarely used uh, parliamentary maneuver uh, and uh, threaten that to Boehner, who finally says, forget it, I'm out of here. And he calls Meadows and the other people like them legislative terrorists. How do these people then go from these kind of very right-wing populists to embracing Donald Trump, who they're very skeptical of. Well, in some ways, Mark Meadows is a perfect encapsulation of the dynamics that make politics what it is today in 2023. You know, as as Jane mentioned, you know, here he was. He was a kind of um, artifact of the modern engineering of gerrymandering that can kind of carve up these districts with total precision and make sure that it's 
literally impossible to have somebody the other party win. And what that also means is that when he's running against, as he was, in a field of of eight primary candidates, that the only way to win and the only thing he has to do to win is to appeal to the most strident partisan piece of it. So that's one thing. That That's how he gets to Washington. And then even before he goes to battle with John Boehner, you remember there was this one other episode, which is that he was involved in the effort to shut down the government. I mean, it was very unusual. You get to Congress, you're supposed to keep your head down as a freshman in the House. No, he actually started this, uh, started to join this effort to successfully, as they did, they They brought the government to a halt in the fall of 2013. And what's fascinating about it is it was actually terrible politics. You know, people were not happy with it. They weren't happy with the Republican Party. It actually was specifically bad for people in his district because his district encompasses part of the Smoky Mountains and uh, national parks were shut down. So he found himself then sort of later saying, oh, yeah, that was kind of a mistake. I guess I shouldn't have done that. But I remember one of the Republicans who disagreed with this effort of shutting down the government described Meadows and his colleagues as, quote, lemmings with suicide vests, which sounds funny, but it's also really specific. What it means is that they were politically counterproductive, that they were doing things that didn't actually make much sense for anybody but themselves. And I think that is the nub of Mark Meadows, which is that he is beyond party. He is actually entirely about enriching his own power, his own personal interests. So, to you know, at one point, Tim Alberta, who's written also a lot about conservatives, once described uh, Meadows as being the closest that he had ever found in Washington to Frank Underwood, the character played by Kevin Spacey on House of Cards. That it, There really was just a, a way in which he was um, willing to do just about anything in order to advance his personal interest. John Boehner, who had watched himself get stabbed in the back by Meadows, um, concluded later that Meadows was, as he put it, a political schizophrenic, meaning that he would say anything on Monday or on Tuesday that would help advance his his personal goals on Wednesday. What I think is interesting is as a character study looking at him is, you know, you think of Frank Underwood as being, you know, a dark and obvious villain. Meadows is a confusing villain. Mm. He, he's, he's so slippery and contradictory that you have to watch him really closely before you can see that he's just playing every single angle. But he's not an obvious type. Well, let's talk about how he became chief of staff, because actually I think Frank Underwood is a really interesting template there. He, he too, was a villain who nobody knew exactly what game he was playing. And so... Nobody really knew exactly what game Mark Meadows was playing with Donald Trump in the election of 2016. Uh, In fact, he uh, at one point told people he didn't want to go to uh, the convention in Cleveland where Donald Trump was going to be anointed because uh, he didn't want to be a part of that whole spectacle. So even for the Freedom Caucus, they weren't really sure what to make of this guy who in some ways, as Evan points out, was like the logical extension of their politics, right? Uh, The politics of me, 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 of getting on cable television, of kind of performative attacks on government itself as a recipe for permanently gaining followers and commentary. That template, I think, in some ways, as a style of politics was set by the Freedom Caucus, but they were suspicious about whether Trump shared their goals or would facilitate things with them. And yet, Within a few months, Meadows is not only endorsing Donald Trump, but he and a couple other members of the Freedom Caucus, like Jim Jordan, 
uh, another co-founder of the group. They become Donald Trump's most public supporters and advocates and cheerleaders when Donald Trump uh, is impeached the first time uh, in the fall of 2019. It is Mark Meadows who becomes his uh, kind of most prominent defender and spokesman on Capitol Hill. He was out there when I went to cover the impeachment proceedings in the House. Every media scrum, it seemed like there was Mark Meadows surrounded by uh, a horde of congressional reporters spinning on Donald Trump's behalf. And then, boom, just a few months later, he announces he's leaving his House seat. And in March of 2020, exactly the same week, really, that the entire country shuts down for the COVID pandemic, Mark Meadows appears as Donald Trump's fourth and final chief of staff in a White House that has seen more turmoil and turnover than really any White House in recent modern history. So, um, you know, Jane, you've seen a lot of different White House chiefs of staff and models. You know, where's Mark Meadows fit into that story? I don't take it from me. Take it from Chris Whipple, who's written a book about chiefs of staff and is a historian of this and has just written a piece in The Times saying that that he's the anti-model for chiefs of staff. I mean, the whole idea is to keep the country from going over the cliff largely by shutting the door to really dangerous ideas and dangerous people that might influence the president. And as Whipple writes, by that basis, Mark Meadows completely flunked. He's one of the worst ever, maybe the worst ever. <laughs> I mean, for me, in many ways, the archetypes are uh, the, that I think of as especially good ones are, you know, James Baker, who kept people, literally kept people away from Ronald Reagan in order to keep him from doing really uh, destructive things. And, and you know, I mean, Ron Klain and uh, J- John Podesta. I mean, there are any number of wise chiefs of staff we've all seen. Mark Meadows is not one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's worth reminding people who don't know the detailed history of this. It's just one one example of this. I mean, that under... Uh, during Ford's administration, it was, in fact, Don Rumsfeld, who was the chief of staff at the time, who prevented Ford from going to a birthday party that was being put on by a guy who was about to be indicted. And Ford was like, I want to go to the birthday party. And Rumsfeld actually said, you're going to have to call a taxi to get yourself there. I'm going to prevent you from going to that. And that's the kind of thing that a chief of staff supposed to do is prevent a president from going down a road that is destructive for the presidency and ultimately for the country. And and Whipple had a great line, I thought. He described Meadows as a uniquely dangerous failure, which I think is exactly right. And he also, <laughs> I mean, I think, why, why are we talking about this? Um, partly because he points out that this past can be prologue. If you if if Trump were somehow to get back into the White House, this kind of management of enablers who don't stop him, who even amplify his worst instincts, is is what we've seen and what we would see again. I think that's as good of a moment as any for us to take a little break, because when we come back, we'll talk about Mark Meadows' role, what he actually did as White House Chief of Staff in the aftermath of the 2020 election leading up to the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. The political scene from The New Yorker will be back in just a moment. Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. 
Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount. We've given a little portrait here of Mark Meadows, the man, Mark Meadows, the politician, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. But let's bore in a little bit to just how wild and insane this moment was after the 2020 election, uh, as the Trump White House already filled with chaos, already filled with comings and goings, it, it takes on its new and most final destructive form because many of those people who surrounded Trump, even they couldn't take it anymore. Bill Barr, his own children, Ivanka and Jared Kushner, suddenly they just disappeared. And it's left to Mark Meadows and a, a really wild team, many of whom are now on the stand uh, alongside him in this Fulton County case, they become really the creators of this, this constitutional crisis. Uh, when we did the reporting for the book, I thought one of the most apt comments was from uh, a Republican who was around the White House in this period who said, you know, Mark Meadows was a matador. He was like waving mm. the red flag uh, to all the crazies letting them into the White House, telling Donald Trump what he wanted to hear, which was that there was a path forward, even though there wasn't a path forward, even though he lost the election. What else, Evan, can you tell us about the role that Mark Meadows was playing after the 2020 election? Well, exactly as you described, what a traditional chief of staff would do is keep the door closed. He was doing precisely the opposite. He was sort of ushering in wave after wave of more and more exotic and indefensible legal arguments. And and one of the things that was happening in that period that I find fascinating, and I'll be curious what Jane makes of this, is that he was telling all kinds of different people different things. That's been a hallmark of his time, both in Congress and then eventually in the White House. So he would say to people, for instance, look, you just got to give the president time to grieve. That was his word over the uh, loss of the election. Um, but, you know, we're going to get him there. And then at the same time, he was writing text messages, for instance, in one case to Jenny Thomas, wife of uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, about this almost sort of messianic struggle to ensure that Trump would get a second term. I'm just going to read a little bit of the text because it's kind of amazing, the language. He wrote, this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. I mean, that sounds like a truest of true believers, or is it just somebody who is knows exactly what his recipient wants to hear? What do you guys make of it? I mean, this is this trove of text messages is just a, a, a gold mine of material on on Mark Meadows, and also I have to say on on the Supreme Court, since you're you're hearing from the wife of of Justice Clarence Thomas in her private 
texts back and forth with Mark Meadows. And, and the things that she's saying are she is sending him literally uh, QAnon memes, including there's one, uh, just to read you another thing, on November 5th, she says, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators. She goes on and she says she has heard that they will be living in barges off of Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. She's talking about basically the people who've said Biden has won. And then she says, I hope it's true. Um, and what, what? how does the chief of staff respond to her? He, he never says, Ginny, see a psychiatrist <laughs> or <laughs> read a newspaper. Um, it's, it's, it's quite the contrary. He just, you know, humors her along and um, sends her these, these sort of quasi religious things that, that Evan has just quoted from where, you know, King of Kings, he's telling everybody what they want to hear. Well, and Jane, to that point, I think it's interesting that on the same day that he is sending these text messages to Ginny Thomas, you have Bill Barr at the time still Trump's attorney general coming into the White House for one of a, a defining confrontation really with Trump in which he says, like, there is no fraud that is uh, sufficient in any way to overturn the election. There's nothing for the Justice Department to investigate. Uh, you know, Meadows, uh, according to our reporting and that of others, talks to Bill Barr that very same day. He's sending these messages about a messianic struggle between good and evil. He's reassuring Barr and the others that he's going to be, quote, landing the plane, helping to land the plane. I was really struck by that because just the other day in this testimony, he used this phrase again in Georgia that he was really actually just doing his job as chief of staff, helping to land the plane. Jane, was there anything in those texts uh, with Thomas or with others that directly, do you think, implicated Meadows? I mean, what's interesting, again, is that he's a very slippery character, as you've pointed out. What you can say is he seems to be encouraging Ginny Thomas's fantasy that they can overturn the election. There's absolutely nothing in there saying they can't. The closest he comes is in saying that um, Sidney Powell has not delivered um, to the White House the evidence that Ginny Thomas thinks that Sidney Powell has. Um, and so that's the one sort of fly in the ointment in terms of seeing him as totally an enabler of Ginny Thomas's ideas. And and so when he goes down, again, since, you know, the context of what we're talking about, going down to Georgia and in this trial saying he was just doing his job as chief of staff, and he, he's trying to say he really wasn't doing anything that had to do with politics and campaigns, or at least nothing out of line. You can see in these texts, he is very much encouraging the idea of overturning the election, at least in terms of when he's talking to the wife of a Supreme Court justice. So, Evan, uh, you know, Georgia was a particular uh, focus of uh, both Trump's efforts and Meadows's efforts after the election. It was only one of the battleground states that Donald Trump lost. And by the way, even had the result gone a different way in Georgia, the election results still would have remained the same. There are not sufficient electoral votes in Georgia single-handedly to have changed the results of the election. And yet both Meadows and Trump were, were very concerned. Tell us like what we understand from what's public so far, and obviously there could be more that comes out, about why Mark Meadows was involved in Georgia certainly strikes me as pretty unusual for a White House chief of staff to be uh, personally uh, uh, engaged with state election officials on the result of one state's election, going actually and checking in uh, personally on the ground in a recount. What is up with that? 
Yeah. Well, I'd say that the prosecutors in Georgia have precisely the same question. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is how different the Georgia case is than what happened with Meadows in the in the federal case about election interference. Because you'll note, I mean, listeners will remember, he is not actually one of the unindicted co-conspirators in that case. And that is a fascinating fact. How is it that he could be so prominent in the Georgia uh, matter, but then not in the federal case. And that gets to uh, a, another element of his strategy, which is that he has been at various points cooperating or, shall we say, sort of speaking quietly, f- being forthcoming uh, in a strategic way with federal prosecutors, but never actually striking a formal deal of cooperation. So he's managed to kind of keep himself out just on the outer rim of the circle of people who have been implicated in the federal case. Um, but in Georgia, that didn't happen. He, you know, They made the decision, for whatever reason, that they weren't going to, as far as we know, and there's a lot we don't know about the strategy, but that, that they clearly did not come to an accommodation with Georgia prosecutors that allowed them um, uh, to avoid having him be at the center of it. Look, I, I think on some level, the facts are pretty hard to talk your way around. Um, you know, here he is on the phone. Here he is in contact with people. To say that was just in the course of his ordinary chief of staff duties, uh, in effect to say, look, I just work here, is going to be uh, a heavy lift. You know, I was. it reminds me, of course, of the old line of sort of the banality of evil, these guys, folks who just sort of say, look, I'm just working here. His is slightly different. His is sort of the congeniality of evil, right? He was just kind of friendly to everybody, just kind of... Um, just an aw shucks, uh, uh, just a frustrated weatherman just trying to uh, help overturn an election here. <laughs> well, Jane, one of the things that's very interesting that Evan pointed out is that Trump uh, uh, appears so far to have avoided the outright spectacle of um, Meadows turning on him and cutting a deal with the federal prosecutors. Of course, that's still a possibility. There was a lot of speculation. And what I was interested in was that in recent weeks, it appeared that even Trump and his lawyers didn't know until this hearing in Georgia that actually what the status of Mark Meadows was. Had he turned or not? He'd provided some evidence, but not others. He testified, but how much had he done so? So that's one thing we learned this week. How much peril do you think Trump is in from some of these co-defendants actually ultimately turning on him? I mean, generally, that is a strategy that prosecutors use, right, is they indict uh, others in order to pressure them to testify against uh, the central witness. I I think it's, you know, an essential question. And if you look at Meadows, it's very hard to answer because, as you say, he has kind of partially cooperated over time. After all, he did give some of his text messages to the Congressional Committee, but he didn't give all of his text messages. Um, He then stopped and said he couldn't do more in the way of cooperation. He plays this double game all the way through here. And I think you'd have to say that his character seems to be like somebody who would not stand up and knife Trump in the chest He's more of someone who knifes people in the back. <laughs> so <laughs> I, so it's hard to imagine him doing, you know, the great big, you know, uh, becoming state's witness kind of flip. But at the same time, he's also someone who always saves his own bacon. And so you've got these two sort of conflicting um, strands of Mark Meadows, which is why we're going to have to watch this thing 
very closely on the special Fulton County YouTube channel um, (laughs) as as things unfold. Evan, I wanted to ask you, because Jane made an excellent point here, uh, as far as the, the court case goes, what do you make of the Meadows' decision to go ahead and testify in court? We have not got a ruling yet, by the way, and I do think it will be an early indicator in some ways of what we're looking at in this in this Georgia case. I don't know, honestly, um, whether this strategy will work, but I, I think it was not done uh, casually. This was a real decision. He's got lawyers who are actually more experienced and sort of seasoned than some of the other players involved in this drama. And this was very much um, a choice about trying to separate himself to some degree from Trump's fate. And I think this is brings us all the way back to where we started, which is that, you know, he is a specific, as you used a perfect word, Susan, you described him as an archetype. And in some ways, you know, he is almost Trumpier than Trump in this moment. He is putting himself above the interests and needs of his cohort, you know, the rest of his, in this case, co-defendants. Yeah, we've talked on this show in the past about a kind of shamelessness in Washington and the puzzle of that and how it came to be and how it is that somebody could do things that they would have been considered out of bounds in the past in Washington. Well, you know, that image of him getting down on his knees and begging John Boehner for forgiveness after trying to, you know, knife John Boehner as speaker, that is shameless behavior. I mean, both the the knifing and then the apologizing and the seeking of forgiveness. This latest thing in Georgia— same sort of thing. I mean, there is, turns out, as they say, uh, if you want a friend uh, in Washington, um, get a dog. <laughs> Jane, I, I will give you the last word on Mark Meadows. Our amazing colleague, Charles Bethay, has done overall some great reporting on Meadows' um, uh, career. But one of the things, of course, that's been sticking with me during this conversation is reminding me of Charles's great scoop about these folks as they're promoting the lie about the rigged election and, you know, the massive voter fraud that wasn't, that it actually was Mark Meadows in the 2020 election who registered to vote in North Carolina, apparently at the address of a trailer home that he never even visited. Talk about the grift, the grifters, and whether this is the last act, you think, in politics for Mark Meadows, or he'll still be around. Isn't it always projection with these people? They talk endlessly about (laughs) voter fraud, and it turns out Mark Meadows registered to vote in Alexandria, Virginia, in a trailer that he's never set foot in in North Carolina. And then the Washington Post adds on to the fantastic reporting done in The New Yorker and notes that he's registered in South Carolina, too. Um, (laughs) In terms of um, what his future augurs, I have to point out that he somehow slipped out of being charged in any of these voting fraud um, possibilities. And and we're going to watch him (laughs) do his uh, slippery thing in the months ahead. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll leave it, I guess, at that. Accountability, hashtag, question mark. Uh, That's what it's all going to come down to. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. What a what a conversation today. I have a feeling we'll be we'll be circling back on this one. Evan, great to be with you. Thanks, Susan. Great to join you. Jane, great to be with you. So good to be with both you guys, as always. 
This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Susan Glasser, and we had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening.